Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. What has a silky white coat, giant terrifying claw hands, and never sees sunlight? Literally, because it has no eyes. Now, this species is so underground that you definitely haven't heard of it, and most people haven't seen it, but it's been here for over 60 million years. We're a little bit, I guess, like forensic scientists, just just looking for some hook that we can understand something with this very tricky animal to study. Welcome to Look At Me, I'm Benjamin Law. Now everyone loves and maybe is distracted by these well-known Australian animals, koala, emu, wallaby. Very beloved, maybe they're overrated. Because what about the reclusive ones, those that avoid the spotlight in order to survive? Clearly not talking about yourself there, Ben. Wow, that is a sledge. And that's also Chris McCormack from Remember the Wild. He's here to explain Australia's lesser-known animals to me because... I know nothing about them. Nope, you've had your head in the sand. Wow, that is absolutely true. So, where are we going? Mm, we'll go for a walk. Um, that's the mal- we'll, we'll drive the Marla paddocks and we're away from everything and we walk through the dunes and stuff like that. Yeah. Too easy. So, you're getting into, what, a car with a stranger? <laughs> Where are you being taken to? Typical Friday night. Um, <laughs> no. Well, look, I'm somewhere where there's a lot of sand. Uh-huh. Big sand dunes. Are you on Fraser Island? No, not so much water oh. around this area. You know, when I first heard the footsteps, I, I was like, are we going to be exploring the most dangerous Australian animal of all? Is it man? No. <laughs> <laughs> You've, you said earlier, to quote you, you back to you, you said absolutely guaranteed to find one. Um, so I'm really looking forward to that. I can absolutely promise you, Chris, hey, we'll, we'll, we'll be able to just bump into them. You'll be able to just bump into them. So this doesn't sound too endangered or rare, unless, unless your friend is being ironic. He may be saying that with a bit of tongue-in-cheek. Okay, you're never going to find this creature at all, are you? Well, we'll find out. I'm going to show you what I'm looking for, Ben. Okay. And uh, you can describe this creature to me and uh, our listeners. Oh, it's hideous. Actually, it's not that... Look, it's not that hideous, but I also don't know what I'm looking at. And what we're looking at is like something out of, you know, the science fiction film June... You know, things are coming up out of the earth and eating stuff. All those things in Beetlejuice, the worms that kind of just emerge from the earth to attack to attack prey. So it looks kind of furry, but slightly unpleasant. It looks like it has a ferocious face, like a very soft golden pelt, but at the end of its two front limbs have what looks like either claws, fingers, or possibly penises. Then its mouth is just mostly snout. Typically, they're only, I suppose, about uh, you know, 50 to 80 grams or so, 10 to 13 centimetres in length. 
This is Dr. Joe Benchemish, and he's pretty much the only person in the country that knows anything about this animal. Does it have any eyes, Chris, or am I just imagining that? It doesn't look like it actually has any eyes. They have no eyes whatsoever. Nothing. No, no eyes. Not tiny eyes, not hidden, covered eyes. They have zero, zero eyes. Pretty much zero eyes. Anatomically, there is a little cluster of uh, pigmented cells where the eyes should be, uh, but there's nothing on the surface, and, uh, and apparently there are no nerves leading to those little sacks of pigment. So they've completely lost their eyes, functionally anyway. They have a very sort of calloused nose that's used as a bit of a battering ram underground. And I suppose the other very distinctive feature about them is their, 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 their hands. The third and fourth digits form these big claws that are a, a bit reminiscent of, of yabby claws or something, specialised for digging uh, in the sand. But they very rarely come to the surface, and so they're very rarely seen. So this is a creature that doesn't have any eyes. It can't see whatsoever and instead, it has these massive, what, two-fingered hands that just claw at things, and it's digging under the earth. If I met something that was not its current size, but had all of its features and was my size, I'd be scared shitless. Like, that would be terrifying. That would be terrifying. Um, and, you know, rightfully so. And you can imagine anything that is uh, smaller than this creature probably is scared shitless of it. Ben, this is a marsupial mole. Okay. And there are actually two species of this creature. There's a northern marsupial mole and a southern marsupial mole. And they don't really look much different. One's kind of slightly bigger than the other. But so this is a very bizarre, interesting Australian animal. Moles aren't renowned for having great eyesight, but I haven't seen a mole that just doesn't have eyes whatsoever. We heard just before that it has kind of a change of pigment where the eyes, quote, should be. Yeah, they're kind of gone. It's kind of it's almost like there's just a, a little sign where there used to be some eyes, but they're they're well and truly out of them. They've evolved out of their face. They're like, you know what? That's a hassle. Let's just get rid of them. Well, why do you need eyes when you live where this animal lives, which is underground? Completely underground with no light whatsoever. So here's the deal, Ben. No one is funding research on these creatures anymore. And it's Joe's fault. Um, wow, we're already victim blaming so soon into the podcast. I'm into it. Let's hear more. <laughs> well, we'll come to that. But first, let's learn a bit more about this creature. Well, their diet appears to be mostly the larvae and and grown-ups of ants, to a lesser degree termites, and beetle larvae seem to be the, the big ones. Underground, they are probably peerless. Most creatures that live underground actually live in little hollow tunnels full of air. Um, so their movement is pretty constrained, really, to their little tunnels. And ants are like this. Marsupial moles, however, they are in a three-dimensional habitat. They can go any which way. Um, so they could be formidable predators underground if you're very small. And it's conceivable that they could eat all sorts of things. How they breed, we don't know. We don't even know how far on average a marsupial mole travels in a day. We have no idea whether there is you know, a, a seasonal pattern to that. 
there are many, many questions. What I'm hearing there is how little we know about this creature whatsoever. Like, in a way, it's kind of a miracle that we know about it at all, given that it spends all of its time underground. But here's the thing, Ben. The marsupial mole's not a mole. Oh, twist! They are not moles. They are not at all related to the moles of Europe, which are pesky pests and, and disliked in a lot of places. In the early days, when marsupial moles were first discovered to science, acknowledging, of course, that they were discovered a very, very, you know, tens of thousands of years ago by Aboriginal people, but they first came to the attention to science um, when a fellow called Coulthard at uh, Idrakawa Station in the Northern Territory came across this unusual-looking creature in the 1880s underneath a tussock, and he, um, he collected it, he wrapped it in kerosene-soaked rags and sent it down to the South Australian Museum, which probably took weeks, and it was pretty rotted by the time it got there. A description was provided in the literature of this weird animal and experts from around the world quickly weighed in that it was clearly, you know, closely related to the golden moles of Africa. It does look kind of similar. Others said it was a monotreme and others said it must be a marsupial. Turns out that it is a marsupial, it does the marsupial thing, so it has... um, gives birth to a tiny little embryo that crawls into a pouch. In the marsupial mole's case, it's a backward-facing pouch, which makes sense if you're tunnelling through sand, a bit like a wombat. And within that pouch, there are two teats. What that tells us is that it can't have more than two young. We're much more closely related to the true moles than the marsupial moles are. We as humans are more closely related to moles than the marsupial mole because we're, we're eutherian mammals, placental mammals. Exactly. So we are much more closely related to the moles, to whales, to bats, to all of these animals than the marsupial mole is related to any of them. I've never been a fan of the term marsupial mole. I much prefer their Aboriginal names or a couple of their Aboriginal names for the two species. Ujari Ujari for the southern marsupial mole and Kakaratul for the northern one. Wow, so a part of that sounds a little bit like high school, like she's a mole, she's not a mole, she's a mole, she's a mole. But what we really get from that is that this isn't actually a mole at all and marsupials like koalas, like wallabies, uh, like kangaroos, the ones that we're familiar with, here is like an underground version of those kinds of creatures that carries around its young in its pouch. Yeah, this would be like saying kangaroos are marsupial deer. Uh-huh. You know, yeah. it should have its own name, right? Yeah. And it does, as Joe said, in, um, in, in uh, different Aboriginal languages where these animals are found. So you're blind. You live underground. It's not the best lifestyle. How do you even begin to date? How do you begin to find the mate that you're going to shack up with for life? How do males and females meet up? We don't know. We have no idea. They have a few senses available to them, apart from um, they obviously don't have vision and it would be pretty useless underground anyway. They have very developed olfactory bulbs in their brains and very big noses. So 
the, the chances are they're pretty good at sniffing things out. Most underground mammals, small mammals, have um, adaptations in their ears to detect very low frequencies, which would make perfect sense for a marsupial mole. They don't have these adaptations. And in fact, one author described their inner ears as degenerate. So it's just it just deepens the enigma. Why aren't they? Um, Can they make sounds? Do they vocalise? And then that's the other thing is that um, they can vocalise. We only know that from, well, from the literature, but also from my personal experience. If you have a marsupial mole in the, in the hand and squeeze it, it squeaks. What kind of, can you give us an impression? <laughs> <laughs> just, just a small mammal squeak. But it's, it's, it's nonetheless surprising because these... These very, very unique little animals have been evolving quite separate from others for 65 million years. They've completely lost their eyes, and yet they can still vocalise. So what's going on there? It's conceivable that they vocalise underground. Yet you said that their, their hearing is, is not particularly good. Their hearing doesn't seem to be tuned for very, very low frequencies. So... They, they can still hear. It's just that living underground, the expectation was that they would be, that their hearing would be tuned to very low frequencies because very low frequencies travel very well underground, whereas high frequencies don't. These, this is all guesswork. You know, it's very, very hard to, to reconcile some of these facts. But basically, I suppose we're just, we're, we're, we're just scrabbling around in the dark as well, trying to understand these animals. That's fascinating. So as much as these animals are scrambling around in the dark, we're really in the dark about them too. It sounds like they're one of the most mysterious kind of creatures that live in Australia right now. That's probably a good description. Mm. I love the fact that they can squeak and we know that about them. I love the phrase degenerate mole, which is a sledge that I'm going to file away for later. But Really, the more that we talk about them, the less that we know. So we know that they like living underground, but whereabouts in the country specifically do they live? Well, they live in our central deserts and uh, quite a big, uh, broad range across the country as uh, Australia has a shitload of desert. <laughs> um, so I went to one of the more famous places, Uluru National Park, to see if I could find one. Sandhill country. This is the country of the marsupial mole underneath the spinifex. All right, let's go and find one. So this is Lockie. He's one of the park rangers at Uluru National Park. What's great about the central western deserts is you've got millions and millions of hectares of sort of sand dune country like this. And you realize that the sand and the Sand Hill Country reveals so much of what's been going on. Maybe overnight, a lot of the animals have adapted to be nocturnal or, you know, more active um, when it's not quite so hot. So, you know, if you have a look around you, you'll see all these tracks, all different ones, whether insect or mammalian tracks. You know, the, it's important to, one of the first things you learn, one of the things you'll notice when spending time on country with Undingal would be, 
first thing they hop out the car and they look on the ground because you know that that tells you a lot of them what's been going on if they're going hunting you might not be able to see the animals but you might be able to see where the animals were or where they've been going and this is one of the most disconcerting parts is when you're you're out camping and maybe you throw your sand uh, your swag out in the sand and you wake up in the morning and you see all these tracks around you like oh my word you know there might be dingo tracks or snakes something like that you're like i'm glad i wasn't awake when that happened <laughs> <laughs> and you said before What's the what's the word in language for tracks? Jinnah. 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 It's a word for foot as well. So, you know, foot, track, jinnah. So if we're talking about um, the marsupial mole track, it would be it jari jari jinnah. It jari jari jinnah. So then the problem with these tracks in the sand is that they disappear before too long. But there are traces and signs of the mole that are far more permanent in nature. Okay, we're just coming into a cave here. So where are you exactly? You're in a cave of some sort? I'm in a cave. I'm in a cave within Uluru itself. It's kind of in the side of the rock. Wow, inside the actual structure. That's right, and it's a really sacred and special place. So the women talking are Edith and Teresa, both local Ananu women. Teresa is our interpreter, and Edith is doing most of the speaking here in, in language. And she knows a lot of the stories of the different animals of the Uluru area, including our marsupial mole, or as they say, the Ichari Ichari. So, so why is this the place that you that we've come to talk about it, Jari Jari? Now the word you hear repeated is Chukapa. And that refers to the creation time, as well as the stories or law passed down from that time to now. It's a chukurpa. It's really hard to explain. What? It's a chukurpa. Kukumura. Chukurpa. Pass on from generation to generation. It's a chukurpa. Chukurpa. So this cave is actually in Uluru, the structure itself. We know that we're not supposed to walk on it, physically step on it. But then how do you access this cave itself? That can't be for everyone. It's not for everyone, Ben. It's a really good point. And it has to be said that I was in a really privileged position to be allowed to enter this cave. It's a sacred place and I was only allowed to go in there because I was with Edith and Teresa. Edith tells us that in dreaming this cave was the home of an Ijari Ijari woman. The ancestral Ijari Ijari. She made place here. She made home here. So, wait, Ijari Ijari is the word for the actual mole, mole marsupial itself? That's right. But there was, in the dreaming, the idea of a woman who was, what, the first or the representative of this particular animal? In the story, she represents Ijari Ijari. <laughs> So I'm outside of the cave now, and Edith is pointing to a number of these large holes in the top of the cave in, in, in Uluru. 
Those are it, Jerry Jerry's holes. So Edith is motioning with her hands of the Ijari Ijari popping in and then going back in to the rock, the way that they would come out of sand. See those rock holes? That's the Ijari Ijari. Goes in and pops out. See those? This one here. Ooh. So these these large kind of holes in the in in, in Uluru. That's it, Jari Jari's work. That's the Jari Jari story. So this is a a story of Jukapa that has been passed on for tens of thousands of years from the creation time. Hmm. How the mole left its mark in Uluru and has also left its mark on. And a new culture. So all these different holes around us at the moment—that's all it jolly jolly. No, only this area. This area here. So this is a part of the cave structure of Uluru itself, and on part of like the roof of the cave, there are all these kind of like cheddar cheese holes that are on the top. In the dreaming story of how they actually got there, that explains how they got there. They see it jolly jolly as a vital part of that story of how that structure formed. That's right. So there's these these various holes, you know, there's, probably, there's tens of these large holes. Wow, um, so like manhole-sized holes. Yeah, absolutely. And in the in the story, this is the Ijari Ijari that has popped out and created these holes in, the, as you say, the roof of the cave that you can see from the outside. And it's been passed on from generation mm-hmm. to generation. So we kept it for that, no, thousands and thousands of years, the same Chukurba. Mm, from the beginning. And it's the same story, not different. It's all along the same one. It never changed. Ichari Ijari was the first spirit at Uluru. It predates all the other creatures and spirits that came to the rock in the stories, in the Jukapa. So I think that speaks to how enigmatic it is and how, and how ancient it must be totally ancient yeah totally ancient and otherworldly in a sense that they would in their stories um position it as almost the first creature to be there in this place this creature is so mysterious so why is this one particularly so out of our grasp so- it's bloody hot out here, mate. Um, why live here as an animal? <laughs> why, why live here? Why exist here? This is really not the kind of place that I would picture eking out my own existence. If you put your hand on, on, on the ground, you feel how amazingly hot that is. You know, that's, it's almost going to burn your hand if you keep it there. And so even for reptiles, you know, that, that uh, you know, snakes slithering along the sand, it just gets too hot for them. So, you know, at this time of day, you'd be lucky to see anything. So even the stuff that lives above ground is bloody invisible. I don't know if we're going to have much luck finding something that lives underground. <laughs> well, exactly. You know, I think the, uh, the type of landscape, the type of environment, the temperature, variable rainfall, that's all has contributed to yeah, species being um, clever and finding ways of hiding and just operating when they need to, you know, coming out to find food, coming out to find water, not dwelling, not just hanging out in the sand, unfortunately. <laughs> like we are. Yeah, exactly. And we're just getting sunburned, you know. So Anything that can get underground in our deserts gets underground. 
because our deserts are, are pretty harsh places with um, no standing water, so you know no joy there. But you know, extremely hot. You know, temperatures in the 40s are very common during the summer, and at night in winter, I've been out in the Great Victoria Desert where temperatures were negative seven, negative eight, negative nine degrees. So really difficult places to live, huge temperature extremes. Underground, the temperature is a lot more stable, much kinder. So the marsupial mole then, is it uh, an animal from way back that was living in the desert and has evolved to exist underground to cope with those difficulties? Where, where has it come from? Just about everything about marsupial moles is, you know, enigmatic and uh, intriguing and extremely interesting. The most recent genetic uh, studies suggest that marsupial moles branched off from other marsupials around about the time that the dinosaurs went extinct, around about 65 million years ago. So at that point, they, they shared ancestry with you know, both bandicoots and dasyurids. But since then, for the last, say, 64, 65 million years, they have been evolving independently. And we don't know very much about, you know, the changes that are that are occurred because there's very little fossil evidence. There is a little bit from Riversloo. They have found fossil evidence of marsupial moles from up there from around, I think it was 10 to 20 million years ago. And at that time, they were recognisable as, you know, marsupial moles, but quite a bit larger and seemed to be living in rainforest at that time. At that time, rainforest covered most of Australia, so it was a different place, Australia. But since then, the Australian climate has dried and it's gone through various cycles, but uh, the, the general trend has been drying and, the, you know, the, the central deserts appeared and it would appear that the marsupial moles became highly adapted to that, to those deserts, and and yet there are no, you know, relatives, I guess, of marsupial moles now living in rainforests anywhere in the world. So they've become highly specialised for the what we think of as a very very extreme environment, but not necessarily for them. As I said, temperatures underground are much kinder. And humidity levels are quite high, even even when um, when the surface is very parched. Um, so they make a living. These marsupial moles—they're essentially the equivalent, the marsupial equivalent of humans who dig under Cooperpedia to get away from this extreme heat. But we've also heard that they sometimes come up to the surface where it's extremely hot and inhospitable because there are tracks. So why would they ever come up to the surface at all? Well, that's a very good question. And it's an important question because they're also picked off by, by predators when they do come to the surface. And of course, in Australia, we have uh, foxes and cats that have been introduced. And so there's a great deal of concern about what, what impact these new predators might have for them. Why they come to the surface is, is, is very important. And we, we don't really know, but I, I suspect now that they're more like beached whales, that they actually have no business on the surface. Remember, they're completely blind. 
And when they are on the surface, it's not that hard for a, a clumsy, slow human being like myself to pick one up. So very, very easy prey for foxes and cats, but also for raptors. And for that matter, butcher birds and crows, you know, they'd be very, very vulnerable. And they'd have absolutely no warning whatsoever uh, for an aerial predator and very little warning for that matter from a, a, a fox or a cat. And typically when we do see signs of the, on the surface, they're probably of two types. One is that uh, they break the surface and then within a metre or so they go back down again. And Aboriginal people I've worked a lot with, you know, if I ask them what's going on, they'll say, well, shortcut. It probably hit a root or something and thought it'd just take a shortcut or maybe a patch of hard sand and quickly expose itself to the surface, even though it's totally blind, and then quickly go back down again. That's easy to understand. But you also get these situations where they have clearly spent a long time on the surface, many, many hours. We've done quite a bit of work on them. It doesn't seem as though they're meeting another marsupial mole on the surface. It seems that it's a single individual and most likely they're just in trouble and getting old and can't dig down into the substrate anymore. Just like beach whales aren't supposed to be on the shore, we also aren't quite sure why they would end up beached and they don't want to be there. So similarly, these marsupial moles aren't meant to be on the surface. They find themselves there and because they can't see and they don't hear very well, they just become completely vulnerable. Yeah, I try to imagine what that would be like for that animal. It, you'd be really out of your comfort zone. Yeah. With all that in mind, how would you even begin to find one to study? You could walk around, and I know of people who have walked around a hell of a lot through the sandy deserts and never seen one. So I guess our little innovation was to dig trenches and look for their underground signs. You typically don't see anything at all. Um, but when you allow it to dry, to fully dry in the sun for a day or two, you, became, you become aware of these, these, these sand-filled tubes, these holes. Uh, but they're always sand-filled, and they're all much the same size, of around about, you know, 40 mil across. And through that, we've got a bit of a picture of, of where they occur across Australia. And they occur pretty much throughout the, uh, the central deserts, with the exception of the Streslecki Desert, which is also a sand dune desert, but we haven't found any signs there. But they're definitely in the, the Great Victoria Desert, the Tanami Desert, the Great Sandy Desert, the Little Sandy Desert, and the Simpson. And you will find them underground. Um, you will be doing an, an awful lot of walking to try and find one on the surface. You'll be doing a lot of walking to find one on the surface. Who could possibly be that dumb to walk so far? Indeed, but... Uh... You know, Ben, some of us like to venture further than the local coffee shops. <laughs> there are so many complications in studying this animal. Obviously, one way to find out their tracks is to dig underground, but that's still not actually finding the animal itself. So what are the other alternatives? Well, that's right, Ben. Like, how do we observe this animal? Um, how do we observe its behaviour and its life history? We can't see it, but maybe that doesn't matter. 
Well, observing things underground in solid sand, remember that these animals are tunnelling and backfilling as they're going, so they're just within the habitat completely. They're arguably the most fossorial or underground mammal in the world. Because of that, the most promising approach is to listen with geophones, which are essentially like microphones. Microphones pick up vibrations in air, geophones pick up vibrations in solids. And because the, the sand is very lightly cemented on dunes in central Australia, sounds, particularly low frequencies, travel very well. So what we have found is that we can hear marsupial moles digging. They've got a very distinctive sort of shh, 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 digging sound. So we did some experiments. We set up an array of geophones. Trying to detect it is, is one thing. Trying to pinpoint it is very difficult. But it is nonetheless perhaps the, uh, the most promising technique. When we tried it, that was perhaps a decade ago, and the technology has improved vastly since then. A lot of the things we were struggling with then are not an issue anymore. Are you burying them in the soil? Are they at different depths? How are you, how are you putting them out? Well, what we tried, we just buried them at one depth, and yes, they're buried, and, um, and then left for a while so the sand could all sort of re-cement and consolidate around them. We know what the sounds are like, so we can, we can hear them tunnelling. If we can pinpoint that, then we can start listening for other sounds. We know that they vocalise. Um, so perhaps they're vocalising underground. Perhaps they're doing other things that are producing, you know, signatures that we can, we can use. So we would slowly be developing our vision in a sense. We would start with something very blurry and, and, and sharpen it. Learning about their hunting, how they find their prey, we would get an idea of their social system. If they vocalise, we'd be in a position to pick it up. That's essentially stalking them through sound to the best of our ability so far, at least. Going into the future, we do need a way of, of tracking their numbers. We need a way of monitoring. You know, we need that for every species, really. Some way of tracking their numbers to know when they're in trouble to be able to you know, identify when we have to try and intervene and, and change our management practices or, or do something. Marsupial moles are no different. And because they are so unique, we really should be keeping an eye on them. Keep an eye on it or an ear for it. They've tried this technique 10 years ago. Why are they doing it again? Well, like I said at the uh, start of this episode, Ben... Joe kind of worked himself out of a job. The marsupial mole used to be considered an endangered species. But then Joe came along. He found these creatures pretty much everywhere. They got dropped from the endangered species uh. list and bye-bye funding. Now, as Joe told me, there's a bit of a problem with that because we still don't really know how many of them there are. They're originally considered endangered because we have so few specimens because these things just don't show up. They're hard to find. And it's like, geez, there must not be many of them. He went and dug all these trenches across the country and found their tunnels everywhere. He even found them under a ranger's house in the middle of nowhere. 
So he proved that they're actually quite widely distributed, but we still don't really have an, an idea of how many individuals there are or if their population is stable. It could be declining for all we know because we're not monitoring. And that's why we need we need to be doing this research. What we also know is that if they surface to the ground, they're an incredibly vulnerable species totally. from all the introduced predators. We know so little about this animal. We know next to nothing about its behaviour. We don't know much about their reproduction. We certainly don't know how many individuals of the two species are out there or what is potentially threatening their population. So outside of Joe, is anyone researching these marsupials? Nobody is researching these animals uh, or monitoring these animals really, at the moment, um, Joe included, as the funding's gone. But I'm sure he'd love to be able to get out there and trial these geophones and listen in on this species. All right, mate, well, I don't know if we're having much luck, contrary to what you told me. You... <laughs> yes, well, I'm a liar, aren't I? Yeah. <laughs> no, you said we wouldn't have much of a chance, and, uh, I mean, we've spent a full 30 minutes here, and I, I can't believe... Anything worth seeing would take longer than that. <laughs> I reckon we're uh, we're just about done, mate. It's what what's it's middle of the day. Yeah, it's a bit too hot to be out here now. I don't think we've got much chance. You know, maybe we come back later tonight, eh? Midnight. Midnight. <laughs> maybe we might have more luck then. I reckon if you live underground, you don't have to put up with flies in your face either. <laughs> True. Exactly. The millions and millions of flies. Thanks for listening to the show. You can find all our other episodes at theguardian.com or any podcasting app. Please give us a rating or review anywhere you can because it really helps people find out about the show and learn the best strategies to keep sand out of your two-teated pouch. Look at Me is supported by the Australian Conservation Foundation and is hosted by me, Benjamin Law. It was produced by Chris McCormack from Remember the Wild and Miles Martignoni at Guardian Australia. Mm-hmm.